When I was in, um, when I was in high school, um, before I dropped out as a year 10 student, um, I had this dream of being some sort of designer. Uh, I was thinking industrial design or, um, or architecture, something along those lines. And um, I was really terrible at art, but I was good at graphical drawing. It's a weird thing. And, and so I had this fascination with, with architectural features. And, and uh, it's a very subjective thing. You know, what, there's hits and misses in architecture, and, and it's all subjective. What you might consider really a, a wonderful thing, I might consider something that's not quite so wonderful, and vice versa. I could go, gee, that's awesome, and you go, what are you looking at, right? You know, there's so many things that, that, that it's just a, it can be a, a polarizing, some places are really polarizing. Uh, if I think of some things like this one, that's a polarizing building, right? All right, it, you know, someone went to Bunnings, got a heap of pa- papers, threw it at the wall and see what stuck. All right, it, for me, it's a miss. All right, it's a, it's a miss for me, but it might be a hit for others. All right, there might be some sentimentality there. Um, for me, a, a miss is, is this one, Federation Square. All right, I, I, it's messy. It's not ordered. There's nothing classical about it. And, you know, look, it's better than what once stood there. This is in Melbourne. And, uh, and I, I, I know what was there once. And it was ugly, uh, so this is a slight improvement. Uh, so for me, miss. For other people, best thing ever. All right, there's campaigns. Apple wanted to put a store in there, and everyone said, "No, keep the classic lines of Federation Square." <laughs> me, no. Others, yes. All right. For me, I say uh, yes to that one. All right, because you, my guys, you would probably affectionately know. I affectionately call this my other office, right? Uh, this is a this is a facade I like. Yeah, okay, it's not some not so much the heritage lines now or the, the 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 ironwork. It's just what it represents. You know, warm and fuzzies for me, and uh, and I like that one. The other one that kind of gets a bit of sentimental in the sentimentality. Not very. Ple- <laughs> Where a lot of my play money goes, right? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. There's um yeah. It's it, it promise. Yeah, it's just it. You know, everyone, all the guys know what that represents right there. All right, somewhere in between, hit and miss. Somewhere I visited in March this year. Hit and miss for this one, all right, because you walk into the compound and you go, my goodness, look at that, that's an icon. And you look at it, and, and, but then it takes ages to walk the length of the grounds to get to the thing, and you've got a tour guide with us. And the Indian tour guide is giving us a darkest story ever on how that thing was built. So by the time you, you see it, you come out, and, whoa, there it is, get the selfie, you know. For the distance from there to there is the storytelling part. So you get that, and then you find out, on the way through it, this is looking awesome. Yeah, 20,000 slaves built that. What? You know, and then, you know, and it's a, you know, the architect had his arm cut off, his hand cut off, you know, because he dumbly said, you know, the king goes, so reckon you can build another one like that? And he goes, can you do, actually, the king goes, can you build something better? And he goes, absolutely. Now, hindsight, he probably learned a lot from building that and probably could. But he said the wrong thing. And the guy goes, I don't want you to. Cut both his hands off. You'll never draw, draw something again. It's like there's a dark story behind this thing, and it's a gravesite for two people, even though it was only designed for one. It's a mausoleum. Right? It, there's a, it's a hit and miss for me. It's pleasant to look at, nice to visit once. And, um, but yeah, that, it's, it's a hit and miss. Or 
All these things here, all the photos up here are facades of buildings. This one's in Beechworth. All bar one or two of them taken with my own camera. In an architect's thinking, the facade is often considered the most important aspect. From a design standpoint, the facade sets the tone for the rest of the building. The facade offers a glimpse. The facade presents an invitation to come and see what lies behind. If the facade fails, often the building won't be entered. Think about it in real estate terms when we went house hunting. Jen and I looked at a lot of facades of houses, a lot of terrible curb appeal places, and we drove right on. The curb appeal alone said stay away, the facade was terrible. But also the facade can also do its job well. It can entice us to look inside. And sometimes the facade actually delivers more than the interior promises more than the interior delivers. We've had other, that's actually a worse experience. It's one thing to kind of go, yeah, nah, keep hit the accelerator and go. It's a whole other thing to get out of the car with a sense of hope and expectation and then walk in and go, what on earth is this? In the real estate market in Mount Gambia, you'll find homes with awesome curb appeal, only to find that the inside is a mess. The experience turns into a distasteful one. Even the credibility of the agent that's trying to present that can be harmed in that process too. But also there's other gems, aren't there? Ones that give little away on the front. Then you are pleasantly surprised when you walk in. With all that said, this series that we have been speaking on uh, throughout the course of this year is titled Under Construction. And even in this series, the design and the idea we've been exploring actually has a facade in its design. It has a frontage. All the things we've spoken about this year are, have been, for the most part, well, entirely internal. The things we've explored so far have been things that Jesus is doing in us, things that Jesus is doing to transform us. But eventually, there is going to be an external expression. Eventually, there will be a facade on us that sets a tone of how and what people are to expect when they, when they engage with us further. Let me just further this project along just a little. I'm getting good at these nails. I'm being reminded of the Karate Kid show, uh, TV, movie, the movie from years ago, when the guy was being trained to hit just two hits and get the nail in in one shot. I'm not that good. The facade for us is what Peter calls godliness. And we're going to see over the next four weeks that this trait is of vital importance in a believer's life. 
It sets the tone of what people are going to encounter in us. It makes promises that our character will be required to back up. And as a result, our credibility as Christians can potentially rise and fall on this area of our lives. Behind this trait, behind godliness, is faith, is goodness, is self-control, is knowledge, is perseverance. If these things aren't in order, our godliness may well expose a bit of hypocrisy in us instead. So today we're going to explore some entry-level ideas on what godliness is. Next week, um, I'm up again and we'll start to speak about it in practice. As we do this today, I'm going to select a number of verses out of 1 Timothy to help us understand it better. Paul uses this word godliness the most um, uh, often out of all the writers in the New Testament. And he uses it the most repetitively in 1 Timothy. So it makes sense to, to go through that a bit today. So I'm going to do a bit of a survey of this. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then chapter 3, and then chapter 4, and then chapter 6. And what I've done is I'm actually going to have these on screen, just a, a quick survey of a few ideas, and I'll sum them up at the end. And now what I've gone and done, I'm going to find out hit or miss here. Miss. Okay. I went on a bit of a... It, Apple said this worked. My iPad said this is going to be fine. But Bill Gates says no. So once it gets on the screen here, those boxes are actually supposed to be Burmese. I, that is not Burmese. But I'm, I'm actually putting... Uh, we have three strong cultures in our church at the moment. So I've been trying to experiment by, by putting English, Burmese and Swahili up there as well. Uh, so that hopefully uh, this is going to be something that we can interact with together a bit more freely with when we engage with Scripture. So I'll get your feedback later on this. But let me go over some, some verses with you at the moment. Uh, so 1 Timothy... Um, Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Uh, let me read these out to you, and then we'll go over to chapter 3. So here we go. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. All people. Catch that? All right. And he clarifies it. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All right, that's chapter 2 there. All right, let's go over to chapter 3 and we're just going to look at verses 14 to 16. Windows was not kind to me here, was it? All right, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. 
have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And finally, the big stretch, chapter 6, verse 3 to 6. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a bit of a survey of the idea of godliness in 1 Timothy there. The most prolifically used idea of the word here. The word godliness translates from a very common word in the Greek. It's called Eusebia. As a religious concept, this word had been around for about a thousand years at the time Peter wrote It was part of everyday vocabulary for the average Roman citizen uh, and and particularly in the regions that Peter is writing to. It was used in the vocabulary of pretty much every pagan religious code. And it simply just means to be devout. In the pagan religious world, anyone claiming faith of any walk was actually expected both within their community and by the society around them to back it up with this idea of Eusebia, of, of a godliness, that we, what the word we translate as godliness. It spoke of people who were genuinely devoted to their God of choice and their Eusebia was their outward expression or their public display of that faith choice. This was a word in their society that called a religious devotee to be more than a facade. Today we see this practice of of Eusebia in Islam, in Buddhism, in in Hinduism, in Sikhism. I was in Adelaide a a week ago. We were there for a conference this week, but the, the week prior I was in Adelaide. I was walking down Pulteney Street to look for some food. I call it urban foraging when I'm looking for food in the city. And, and I'm, in, I'm walking down Pulteney Street, and there's a little park. And I'm walking, as I'm approaching that, there's a beautiful smell in the air. Really well-made food. Sitting on it, and, and I come around to this park, and there is a Buddhist monk, actually with a gigantic hot pot. Who, and he's presented a meal, and he's literally feeding a string of homeless people and their dogs. Seriously, there were a couple of canines in there too. It's feeding every man and their dog. Giving a very well-presented thing to serve in his neighborhood because that is his form of Eusebia. Earlier this year in Amritsar in India, up in the Punjab province there, part of my tour was to visit this place, the Golden Temple. <clears throat> that thing sits in the center and all around it is this gigantic sort of, you know, temple ground and buildings all around it and amongst that building, that white building behind it, is a monstrous kitchen and dining facility that actually allows the, the Sikhs, this is, the, this is the, the mecca for the Sikh religion, it actually allows them to serve 200,000 meals a day for free to, to visitors in their food hall. 
And it's actually inscribed into their religion that their religion is supposed to feed the poor. In other words, that big food hall is actually an expression of Eusebia in a pagan idea. The idea that's going on here is actually something I could consider a good one. Religion should have action attached to it, which demonstrates it is more than something we tick on a census box. And if that was the society's expectation to the neighborhoods that Paul and Peter are writing to, it should be no surprise that the apostles called for it in Christians also. After all, if all the other pagan religious codes without the truth could express this, how much more so and exceedingly so should believers who actually had the truth? In 1 Timothy, Paul tells us some key things about the nature of the godliness that we operate from. In chapter 2, we were shown that our expression of godliness is demonstrated in our prayerful disposition as citizens and members of a community. In seeking to participate in a peaceful community, we are engaged in outward-focused prayer for that outcome. Hopefully you'll see a trend as we explore this. In chapter 3, we're told that godliness has a reverent respect for truth. And this in turn influences our conduct as a community of Christ. The last part of that passage we read is believed to be an early ancient creed that was recited often. And it is spoken in the context of the church being a pillar of truth for the wider society. But Eusebia, godliness has to be part of that demonstration of what the pillar of truth is. No point just sprouting off what we believe truth is, but they had to live a life that demonstrated that also. Chapter 4, we're told that godliness is an act of personal discipline. We pursue it and we train ourselves up in it. And we do so understanding both the temporal as well as the eternal value of that practice. Chapter 6, we're shown again that it comes from training and teaching in truth. But also that it leads to a unified people who are not caught up in greed, who have good motives in the faith they claim to have. Basically, all of these verses indicate a facade that delivers what it promises. They all speak of character beyond the charisma. Substance behind the curb appeal. A pleasant experience in the lounge room, not just a pretty front door. They all speak of a faith that is both vertical and horizontal in its expression. In Christianity, a Godward devotion leads to horizontal influence and expression. And a horizontal awareness 
actually compels us to our knees in an upward intercession. In the faith the apostles speak of, we really can't have one or the other in isolation. Godliness doesn't happen unless both expressions are in play. Our devotion has a vertical and a horizontal expression and they both operate together, fueled by one another. Prayer in a closet that is aloof from the world around us, whether it be emotionally or physically, that can be a wonderful experience. Going off on hiding in monasteries and praying, going and doing, uh, you know, going and, and doing a prayer retreat or different things like that, you know, doing your devotions by the lake as some pastor photographed themselves this week. These are fine. But those in and of themselves is not quite the idea Peter and Paul have here. James writes that faith without works is a dead one. Having upward devotion with no horizontal expression is not quite godliness as described in the Scriptures. It's also true of good works. The other way. Jen and I have worked in Christian non-profits a bit. We've interacted with other people who do similar things. Work in the, in, in the society we live in doing Christian endeavors. Some of it's chaplaincy, some of it's different things. And it is very easy, and even just the everyday believer who's not doing those things, just trying to serve Jesus and the world around us, we can get really, 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 really caught up in the service and the work and the good works element of our faith. And it comes at the expense of our time with the Lord in doing so. So we have this horizontal expression, but the vertical's gone. And when we get into that trap, we actually burn out. One pastor that I'm aware of, Ajith Fernando, a Sri Lankan guy, actually wrote that burnout occurs when the wick is burning, but the oil's gone. There's supposed to be an intertwined relationship between our time with God and God's work on the earth around us and how we relate to that. And that's where godliness fits into our life. There's one last passage in 2 Timothy that is worth considering in godliness as we do this. In chapter 3, Paul warns of false believers in the church. Paul's at the end of his life at this stage, days from death, literally. And he's writing to a young pastor in Ephesus going, mate, you're going to have to watch, watch your back from now on. There's some falsehood there. Check out the key phrase at the end as we read this. This is people in the church. Be mindful of these guys. There's going to be people in your midst and this is how they'll look. <laughs> People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, holy, unholy, 
without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. This is a church scape being described here. Godliness in the scriptures, Eusebia, a common Greek religious word. But the Christian demonstration of this is one of both form and power. As we look at this last verse, we see this is the ultimate upward and sideward challenge for us today. This speaks of a way of life that contains both style and substance. An outward appearance that can be backed up with the fruit and the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Many Christians actually live the way Paul was lamenting. They reduce godliness to nothing but a form to try to fit into. But they end up miserable as they do it. They end up burnt out. They end up, I got burnt by religion. Why? It's because you never got consumed by Jesus. You made a form of godliness, but you did not step into the power of it. You ever try to put on a piece of clothing that just doesn't fit right? And just how annoying and how... Remember being a child and putting your shoes on the wrong foot and then trying to play football or try to do something that ignores that situation? Just like it's... There's a point where form just does not fit. And that's a miserable existence when we try to persevere that way. If we choose to put on godliness, we actually need to operate in the whole thing. There's an acknowledgement of our religious stance and behavior that backs that up. But it's more than lip service. There is power attached to that also. And that's where the thing works right. So as we finish here today, I'm actually just offering a very basic takeaway for us to get this idea of godliness in our minds. We'll start talking about practical outworkings of that and start talking about how we live our life of godliness out. We've got three weeks to do that. Today, I just wanted to start us off on this idea. As I interact with believers, I often find that godliness is not always understood that well. The most common issue I encounter is this separation of vertical and horizontal expression. Some will describe godliness solely by the way they conduct themselves in the world around them. Often doing the right religious things, I do the things, or I serve, or I have this outward thing that people sort of know me by. I do the Christian things. Therefore, I'm godly. 
Others will describe their spiritual journey only. I pursue godliness by going to all these retreats and I go to all these different things and I sit under all these ministries and I read my Bible 20 million times a day and I've read, the, 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 I've read the, the, all, all the Bible six times this year. I've bathed myself in God and that's it. It's half of the story both times. Very rarely do I find believers talking about godliness as a joint venture between the two. But they actually need to be in order for godliness to be the outcome. One scholar describes godliness as a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of our life. A very practical awareness of God in every aspect of our life. That's good. I like that. Even in the mundane things, God is ordaining our steps and our influence. And we're called to be in tune with that. I like that. Paul writes to be in walking step with the Spirit. So I see some synergy in that. Another writer once put it this way, there should be such a supernatural quality in our conduct that others will know we are children of the Heavenly Father. And the family likeness should be unmistakable. I like that description also. It captures both the form and the power that godliness is supposed to be. I'm going to distill it down this sort of way. Here's my ideas for godliness, just to get us started. Godliness is our deep devotion to God on display and in action. It is being compelled to action by the God awareness we immerse, immerse ourselves in. So one and two are intertwined there. We have, we have this, this devotion to God that is in action, but also there is this time with God, this devotion to God that we immerse ourselves in and they are, they are woven together here. And that feeds into number three here. It is the conviction that our relationship with God, our relationship with other believers and our influence in the world are deeply and inescapably intertwined. We're not just saved so that we can do the spiritual things. We're saved to pursue that and out of that do horizontal things that demonstrate who God is. We're not just Christians because we do horizontal things, but, of course, but out of the strength of the power of who we know in the process. You can't serve, serve, serve and don't give time to prayer and call it a Christian godliness. You can't just pray, pray, pray and do nothing to help others and call that a Christian godliness either. They are woven together. And in the concept of godliness in, the, in what Paul was saying, it is done in community. They are community activities. The, the, the actual benefit of both us as a unified group is in the scriptures there as well as the good of the world around us. We pray for you. Out of this godliness comes unity in the church. Out of this godliness comes a sense of holiness. Also out of this godliness comes impact on the world around us, as well as our own depth of knowing God for ourselves. 
And my last thought, godliness is the facade of Christian faith that actually delivers what it promises. That last line, do you deliver what you promise in how you appear to the world around you? When I look in the mirror, I get up out of bed, get all groggy, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, I can't even see the dawn yet. Uh, I go, drag myself out, just in, in, you know, feed the dogs first because they're demanding my time. Drag myself into the bathroom, look in the mirror. Does the man in the mirror deliver what the facade promises? Do our workmates, does our family experience who we are in God? Do they see us and see the family likeness of our Heavenly Father? Do they look at us and go, I know what's behind that and it's good? Some, let me go back a few steps. Oh, actually, I won't bother. It's too far. There's too many slides. One of the photos I took there was of the Beechworth facade. And in Beechworth, that's in country Victoria there, I remember seeing that for the first time when I was in grade five. That's where I learned the word facade. And it's been preserved by National Trust as a facade. But there's nothing behind it. It used to be a hospital. But it is empty. There's nothing. You see clouds and bushes behind it. You might, if you get the right angle, see a view of Mount Buffalo through those windows. You won't see what it, from, it claims to be from the front. What's behind our facade? What does the world find when they dig a little deeper into us? What do we find when we dig a little, bit, a little bit deeper into us? When we utter those brave words, search me, O God, what does he find past the veneer? Godliness can be a facade. It can be a form. But we're also challenged to walk in power. When people look past that, when we look past that, when God looks past that. What's there? Is it form and power? Or is it just form? Let's pray. Lord, we have a a while to go in understanding this concept and talking about it. But already we know, Lord, that you're bringing challenges to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly live godly lives. Lord, would you draw us closer into intimate time with you? And may you also call us into intimate time 
with others, demonstrating who you are. Friends, if any part of this morning has challenged you, let's take a moment to reflect on that. Is there form and no power? Is there activity but nothing really going on in the spirit? Is there a wick burning but no oil inside it? Is there service and action but no time with the Lord to power that? Is there time with God that is truly sacred and wonderful but has no outlet for the world around us to benefit from that time you've had? Are the two, both vertical and horizontal expressions of our faith, in order at this time? That's what godliness is. something's out of order, would you take this time now just to address that with the Lord? Would you let him speak to you about something you can do different? Something you can do in your time? Something you can do in your conduct? Something that can build godliness? particularly as we go through a month of this. Would you open your heart to allow God to develop this trait further and deeper in us? Something's starting to get stirred in you. Would you just deal with that with the Lord now? And Dale will lead us in worship after that time.